Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. Open up your Bibles to Mark 15. If you were here last week, you know right where we're at. Um, Jesus has been tried by the Jews, and then they bring him to the Gentiles, in, in, in part because the Romans are the only ones with the actual sovereignty to actually execute and do those sorts of things. There's some freedom of the the, the priests to be able to do some things, um, but ultimately they have to do it with the consent of Rome. So when they stone Stephen, that's just rage, right? And they're, they're not supposed to be off killing people willy-nilly. So Jesus has, in his ministry, shown his power. He's been prophetic, and it's all come true. He has been a priest in cleaning out the temple courtyard. He's been a king in that he was welcomed with palm branches and marched into the city. Um, and now he's being illegally tried by very small men, <laughs> right? This is the king, priest, prophet being tried by petty people. And you feel this descent into just kind of madness here. This hour has come, as he said it, where I think there's just no restraint on evil. And evil starts with, malicious kind of talk. It starts with uh, twisting Jesus's words. He gets three different trials. They're illegal trials. They're breaking the law left and right. Um, finally, they ask Christ, it, they ask Jesus, are you the Christ? And the high priest stands up, leaving his seat of judgment when he does it. And Jesus says, I am. And I got to feel like just the floodgates just broke. I mean, heaven just unleashed when those words came out. We've been waiting. You go back through the Old Testament, it's all this dancing around the name of God in my name. And he never says Jesus till we get to the New Testament. So when he finally reveals to the world officially in a courtroom after hours of interrogation, he's there. The priest rends his robes. He says, I don't need anything more. That's it. Because after hours and hours and hours of lies, they can't even hear the truth anymore. They're just dead to it. And when they finally hear two words of truth, he rips his robes, sends them off to Rome, says, this guy needs to get executed. Not even stopping to think, maybe he's telling the truth. Maybe he is the Christ. And so Mark's going to race us through the Roman trial. I think Steph's going to like this. In 47 verses, this is the shortest gospel account of the trial. And, and honestly, it has to be there because it's an important piece of the story. But I don't think Peter likes to tell it. I think he's, he would rather move through this stuff. So we're going to do chapter 15 in one day today. We might go over an hour a titch. Um, and you know when a pastor says a titch, it means like 10 minutes or so, maybe 15, 30 Somewhere in there. But it's a good back, uh, I think it's a good opportunity because we have a short version of the story to tie all of this back into the Old Testament. So if you could, I'm going to get you ready early. Have your finger in Mark 15. Have another finger in Isaiah 53. We went there last week a lot. We're going to go right back to it. There's so much there. And then if you um, have a third finger still on your hand, go to uh, Psalm 22. And I just, we're going to have a few other things here and there that I'll just read. But uh, if you're able to flip quickly to those three spots, I think you're going to enjoy some of the connections that are here. 
I don't even know if Mark intentionally puts them here. They're simply fulfillment of prophecy. And I feel the sense that Mark's just simply telling the story and that it ties together really well. So enough review and context. Let's get to the, the chapter. Immediately in the morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and the scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus, led him away, and delivered him to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered and said to him, it is as you say. And the, priest, the chief priests accused him of many things, but he answered nothing. And then Pilate asked him again, do you answer nothing? See how many of the, these things, see how many things they testify against you? But Jesus still answered nothing, so that Pilate marveled. How is it possible for a human being to be accused of things and not respond to them? Everything in us wants to defend ourselves, wants to stand up for himself. And, but in this sense, it's almost like Jesus is kind of, you know, intentionally waiting for this punishment or accepting it without a word. So it does it immediately in the morning. I already mentioned that the first trials with the Jews are kind of illegal. This third one is after daylight. They shouldn't be holding trial at night. It's against the law. So this is kind of, they kind of do a quick like uh, rubber stamp trial here at the end, uh, which is the official Jewish uh, religious trial that he goes through. It's primarily why they did it early in the morning is because remember when he got marched into the city, he had crowds of people cheering him on, singing his songs. And in the temple courtyard, he had groups of people that swept to him. There was jealousy going on because all these people that were coming from out of town for Passover, they love this guy. All those people that came down from Galilee, they've seen his miracles. They know who he is. They've seen him heal people. They got great Aunt Ruth that got such and such healed by Jesus. Right? But the people living in Jerusalem haven't seen that much of the ministry. When it says immediately in the morning, we can assume they're doing this before everybody gets in for the day, for the festivities and the Passover feasts. They're doing this before the crowds show up. So largely you've got a group of people described in verse 1, elders, scribes, the whole council. They're up and out of bed because they want to get rid of this guy. So they get up early. They do this right at the crack of dawn. They deliver him to Pilate. Um, because they have to. <laughs> so when I say small people, I, even these religious that think they're in charge and presume that they know what they're doing, they still have to go to Pilate for things. So it's interesting that God has taken away their sovereignty, but they've still puffed themselves up. When God took away their sov sovereignty with Babylon, like they didn't have a king or a ruler anymore. There was some humility that came with it. But at this point with Roman rule, there's, they've, they've even passed that and have no humility, even in the sense that they're not sovereign over themselves. But these people think they're that important. So they have this kind of thing. Rome is going to keep strict protocol. They're not going to break a lot of rules here. Um, so, but, but still, the whole situation comes up to where I think the Rome's, this is out of Rome's control too, because God's sovereign. The first question, are you the king of the Jews, shows that the indictment to, that the so they brought and said, are you the Christ in that last chapter? But when they bring him to the Romans, they twist it and say, he says he's our king. So you, Rome, need to deal with him on a political level. They change it from a religious conversation to a political conversation. And I won't go off too much, but you guys know how I feel about getting too deep into politics. Like, it's a mistake for Christians. It's not our realm. It's not where our kingdom is. So when we fight battles in that area, we lose, even when we think we've won. Because our goal is to draw hearts to the kingdom of God. 
But this is one of the things that I think misled believers do, and that's what these high priests and elders and scribes are. They use politics to get their way in things. Instead of changing hearts, they try to change laws and they try to manipulate Pilate. And in this sense, they're going to do one of the greatest evils that the world has ever seen. In the name of God, they're doing this evil. So they, they say he says he's the king. Jesus, I think, answers not, I don't think it's evasive. It's as you say, but he's pointing out the fact that Pilate pronounced it. In other words, the one with the actual civic authority just asked a question and just called him king of the Jews. So I think this is part of why they tacked it above his head as his crime. His crime is to say who he is. Have you seen evil ever say that if you don't say what we want you to say, that that's a crime? That just speaking truth becomes the problem? So he says, I am to the priests, and that's the problem, but he's speaking truth. He says, it is as you say to the Romans, and he's, that's his crime now all of a sudden is that he's saying something that they don't want to hear, but it's actually truth. And just standing on truth, sometimes we think it's hard to stand for the Lord. I kind of like that we live in a country where just saying things that are true really get people triggered. Like, it's amazing how that works. And I, and I think, wow, this is a chance for Christians to sh shine because we don't have to fight. We just have to say, yeah, I'm going to stick with the truth. Thank you. Thank you very much. You know, it's like refusing beans at the dinner table. No, thank you very much. The Jews asked him, are you the Christ? Uh, and he added also the son of man comment. So he's, he's been very straightforward in these trials. He's only answered the relevant questions. The false accusations, he just remained silent on it. Um, and it says they accused him of many things. In Luke 23, you get a whole detail of some of these things. Mark just summarizes it with, they accused him of many things. And, I, and from Mark's perspective, if we're reading it with his lens, who cares? It's a bunch of garbage. And it's not worth going back to. It's not worth talking about. It's not worth dwelling on. The point is, Jesus chose to remain silent in the face of a lot of evil. I think that's great. The burden of proof in, I think, God's courtroom is not on the accused. It's, on, it's for the accuser to make their case. And so when you're trying to argue you didn't do something, that's logically impossible, even for the best of philosophers. You can't prove a negative because there's nothing to prove. So when they say he did stuff and he didn't actually do it, it's pointless to try to say he didn't do things. And so this is the problem with an unjust courtroom. It's why we have lots of rules around courtrooms and how to do it. But there is a presumption of innocence instead of guilt. And when Pilate says, do you answer nothing? We come up with some of the things that are core to our, our justice system, or at least used to be core to our justice system. You have a right to remain silent. Why? Because Jesus was remained silent. He has every right to do that. You have a right to, to a defense of some sort if you want one. And so we look at some of these things and how, these, how we look as believers in the Judeo-Christian world at a bad courtroom, and it makes it so we make laws about what a good, just courtroom can look like. You're innocent until you're proven guilty. Where did that come from? Here comes right from these kinds of situations. We never want to try like this in our country because God holds us to account to how we do justice and how we deal with people. And if we can't demonstrate and show something and put something on the table, we have no business being in a courtroom. It, there's, a, there's another option, which is forgiveness. And we're, we're called to choose that. So to not respond, and I think this is interesting, psychologically, think of what this does for Jesus's credibility for everybody in the room. The strength to not respond 
in the face of false accusations actually raises his level of dignity, makes the high priest look like a cartoon character, and makes Pilate look helpless. Like, it absolutely shifts the power base. And I don't think it's that Jesus is trying to do that. I think it's that Jesus is God. The power base already is. It was, it is, and it is to come. There's just no competition here. I'm not going to argue with my dog about things. There's an authority structure in this house. When I say to come, that dog comes, or I will help him to come, right? There's no option for the dog. And I think for Jesus, he doesn't get into it with these people because it's not the point. It's not what he's there for. And same with Mark. And this is what, at the end of that passage, what makes Pilate marvel. An unbeliever can see the hatred in front of them and the peace on Jesus, and it's an undeniable contrast. How does that happen? How does one soul stand on the foundation of its belief system and the other soul is out of control? And so I, without giving a defense, Jesus is willingly taking whatever they judge on him, but it's only to their own condemnation. And he flips the scales simply by not talking. And, you know, we take, you know, apologetics classes. We, we, we learn how to, you know, discuss things with different kinds of believers and we study those things. But at the end of the day, sometimes just love, peace, speak volumes. Sometimes. Sometimes you need to open your mouth and not be a coward. But sometimes just being at peace in the face of rage, that's not a bad thing. Verse 6. Now, at the feast, he was accustomed to releasing one prisoner to them, whoever they requested. This was Passover. Like, Romans had jails full of Jewish prisoners. So to release one of them is just like, you know, yeah, it will give you just something to make you happy on Passover. And they usually were releasing somebody who was kind of a devout, you know, Jewish nationalist or something. There was one named Barabbas um, who was chained with his fellow rebels, and they had committed murder in the rebellion. Then the multitude, crying aloud, began to ask him to do just as he had always done for them. But Pilate answered them, saying, Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? So Pilate's trying to get out of this. There's no crime here. And, but he's also got the crowd. And here's the thing with Jewish justice. Because it's carried out in front of a crowd, the mob has some say in that decision. And, this, and in the Jewish justice, you kept the crowds happy. This is part of the problem with the bread riots. Right? If, if the crowds react too much, Rome realizes it's got a tenuous hold on these regions. So if the crowd is fighting back, there's going to be something there. Verse 10, for he knew that the chief priests had handed him over because of envy. Again, Mark makes that point. Um, he realizes this is a false thing and that these people are throwing up a guy they don't like. So the word Barab Bar Barabbas or this, this name that's there is actually a Chaldean name or a Babylonian name. Um, and, of course, Babylon doesn't exist at this period of time, but it's still, that language group is still there. It's a, it's a word play on two things. First, in the Jewish language, Bar, it means the son of, right? Bar, Simon Bar Jonah, son of something. And Abba means father in the Jewish, but it's actually a Chaldean name. So it's like when you hear a name in another language, but it sounds like a different word in your language. So when he says, when, the, when Pilate is speaking this name, I don't think the parents named him this way, but in the Hebrew, it, 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 the, the, the phonetic sounding of this word is the son of the father, son of God. Do you want the false son of God or do you want the real son of God? Which one do you want? And so it's, 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 uh, you see these things and you think, is that a coincidence or did God orchestrate? 
and it, and you see so many of those things. So the fact that he committed murder in the rebellion and Jesus has done nothing of, of any note uh, is interesting because there's a real crime with the false son of God and there's no crime with the real son of God. And and yet this should this should be an easy decision, but then the multitude steps in. Um, when the mob starts rolling in a direction and it's early morning hours before all of Jesus's followers are even awake and out of bed, they're probably up till one thirty, you know, fellowshipping, talking. Um, they're not there. And you've got a crowd of people that really don't like this Jesus. In this moment, when Pilate first used the word King of the Jews, he was asking Jesus. But in verse nine, look at what just happened. The governing authority of the region just gave Jesus a title. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? So with earthly authority, Jesus is given that title. With spiritual authority, he got it when he marched in on the triumphant entry, but every box is getting checked as we go through here. But he just had the governor of the region give him a title king. So he actually is the king, even in an earthly sense. I love that stuff. So the murdering son of God or the innocent king of the Jews, and because of envy, they can't see their hand in front of their face. This is just, we're, we're on the other side of the roller coaster hill, and we're going, the gravity's just taking us down. And so in verse 11, the, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd. It's their crowd. They've planted this so that, that he would rather release Barabbas to them. You want the son of gods or you want the son of God? And I'm not sure if it's possible that the crowd didn't see the irony in all of this. And with the word Barabbas, son of God, son of the father, Pilate answered and said to them again, what then do you want me to do with him who you call king of the Jews? Maybe they're just saying, do you want me to release him too? You want me to, so I, I think Pilate's tone here is like, should I just, you know, give him, put him through the spanking machine and let him go or, you know, whatever. But they cried out again, crucify him. So then Pilate said to them, why? What, like Pilate's confounded here. You get that tone? Like he's just like, what is, what is your problem, you guys? What evil has he done? Like, I'm trying to run a just court here, and you guys just want to send this guy up the ringer. But they cried out all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wanting to gratify the crowd, he doesn't have a heart for it, released Barabbas to them, and he delivered Jesus after he had scourged him to be crucified. All right. At the end of the day, the Romans just don't care that much about life. I mean, they have sporting games in the Colosseum where they just kill people for fun. Life to them just doesn't mean that much. So here's some carpenter from Galilee that they don't like, whatever, crucify him. It just doesn't matter to Pilate. They don't have the same sentiment. They don't have Jewish law for 2,000 years. They don't think like that. If this guy's a problem and I can get peace without this guy, this guy's gone. So an unjust trial, three of them with the Jews. Unjust trial, you had Pilate, and then there's other things in other texts where there's basically three with the Gentiles. Uh, but at the end of the day, he's going to get crucified. When he says, this is the same thing as the King of Jews comment. When he says, why, what evil has he done? The judge is officially declaring publicly. I mean, I think he's exasperated, but he's actually proclaiming innocence when he says that. What evils he's done and they don't have an answer. So in the face of a, an open invitation for any crime, any sin, anything, 
we say Jesus died on the cross sinless, but we say that because mechanically he's actually judged that way by humans, by the religious community, and by God himself. He had no sin. There's nothing that people can bring against him. So I think, again, Pilate's just acting out of human exasperation, but I think God's doing a work here. And Mark's recording it for us that, oh my gosh, he just got called king of the Jews. Oh my word, he just, he just asked if there was any sin and nobody could answer it. Like a sinless king getting killed is what's going on here in every sense. Um, even Rome had a sense of good and evil. Like Romans chapter 1. Even Gentiles are like, you guys are nuts. We're, we're just killing people for no reason now? That's what we're doing? And evil's response to that is yes, with a thirsty desire to kill and destroy. Because it can't stop itself. Once it's going down that hill, it will consume. And folks, let's personalize that. When sin gets a hold of you, and it gets a grip, and it gets the upper hand in your life, it doesn't just go for like a bad day. It goes for destruction. It wants to wreck you. And it'll play this little teeter-totter game for a long time, but boy, when it thinks it's got the edge, it's going for the kill. And like fellowship over lunch, there's people like we, there's people in this room that have seen that. That evil doesn't want to end with just like making you sad. It wants to end by utterly wrecking you at every level. Wrecking your family, wrecking your friendships, wrecking your job situation, all of it. Because you've said, I stand with the king of the Jews. And that evil's response is crucify you, take you out. I almost feel sorry sometimes when people accept Jesus without thinking about it too hard. It's like, do you know what you're getting into? Like you're entering a battlefield. You're not entering a poppy field, right? There's a difference on what's going on here. So even Rome understands these. But from Pilate's perspective, he's like, these Jews, are, they're crazy people. How did I get stationed here? Like they're nuts. And so Mark points out that he's publicly declared interested. He points out that this is to gratify the crowd, the expectation of Messiah, the past revolts that are kind of referenced here before any of the Galileans or the Decapolis or the Capernaum folks arrive in town for the festivities. They're going to get this done early. They're going to get it done quick. We're talking six-ish in the morning here. Isaiah 53, flip there. We did a lot of these last week, but man, I just, this is such a good chapter. There are uh, some Jewish texts that simply remove Isaiah 53 because they don't want to talk about this chapter. Um, he's despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as we hid, as it were, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. We did not esteem him not. not. At this point in time, Jesus has no regard even to give him his life from anybody in this space. There's just no esteem for him, no value for him. You get a soft-hearted person and they catch a spider in their house or something and they'll be like, oh, I don't want to kill the spider. Well, Grant, he has tools for that. But some people will pick the spider up and take it outside and put it out because they just don't want to harm things. Jesus didn't get that much esteem from humanity at this point rejected, despised by men. They release a murderer over him. Barabbas, by the way, is the first person who can literally say, Jesus died for me. Like he gets the first person Jesus saves, technically, um, chronologically, is a murdering scumbag. And Jesus just said, like, Barabbas could walk around saying, I'm the, I'm the number one saved guy. I didn't, I, I didn't die because of Jesus. This becomes a 
an image then of propitiation. Barabbas deserved a punishment of death on a cross. Jesus takes the punishment of death on the cross. That's propitiation. Somebody deserves something, and Jesus says, I'll take that for you. Did Jesus deserve it? No. It's pointed out. It's tried. So he delivered Jesus for final judgment. This is where Pilate hands him over to the soldiers where this is their assignment. There are soldiers in the Roman garrisons that are assigned to the task of crucifixion. They're pros. They're paid for it. This is what they do for a living. It's a mechanical thing for them. And typically these people are fairly straight-faced and dour, like a psychological detachment from the event. We're not going to see detachment in the next few verses. There's something different going on. Like these pros become a little too excited about what they're doing. They scourge him to be crucified. Part of scourging before crucifixion was actually mercy. Uh, If you bled somebody pretty good before they went on the cross, that would reduce the time on the cross because they would bleed to death a little bit quicker. So I'm going to point out through this, in in part because I, I think Mark's moving through this pretty quick, there are some things done for Jesus here that are meant to take away some of the pain and punishment. Um, but they turn into something that, in, in this case, just gets even worse. So, um, then the soldiers led him away into the hall they called the Praetorium, and they called together the whole garrison. Uh, every Roman garrison had a stone in the middle of it where there would be public uh, um, whippings. So if somebody went AWOL or something, they would, there was a whipping stone in the middle of the area. And they clothed him with purple, and they twisted a crown of thorns, put it on his head, and they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. The soldiers are calling him king. And they struck him on the head with a reed and spat on him. The bowing, and bowing the knee, they worshipped him. And when they had mocked him, they took the purple off of him, put his own clothes back on him, and led him out to crucify him. God, throughout the Bible, has protected his own. There have been prophets that have been slain, um, but there have also been prophets and and people of God that have been saved miraculously. In this particular case, I want to point out, these soldiers don't get to do this to Jesus without God removing his hand and letting it happen. In the same way that Jesus kept his mouth shut to let this happen, this is being done because God's allowed it to be done. There's no lack of power in Jesus. Um, And there is a desire by evil to thresh the godly. Uh, Job, uh, you can read the book of Job, right? The whole premise is that Satan says, I think I can take this guy and make him turn. And God says, I've seen Job's heart. I don't think you can do that. And so he threshes him. Luke 22, 31, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed, Satan's asked for you that he might sift you as wheat. Satan asked the same thing to do to Peter as what he did to Job. But in Peter's case, God didn't let him do it, right? No, I'm going to protect Peter. And I just think it's beautiful that anything I go through in life, any trial that I have, any test that I have, it's only happening because God's letting it happen. Any pain I experience or go through, it's because God's letting that happen. Or I've been really dumb and I touched the outlet when I shouldn't have, right? But at some level, like, the enemy needs permission to do things. So as we see evil being done to Jesus here, keep in mind the fact that this evil is being done for a reason. There's a point and a purpose here that has much more glorious than anything else. Once that permission's given, they can't, they cut loose. The, The 16, it's the whole garrison that shows up for this. Let's whip a Jewish person. 
and we're going to especially take this guy who thinks he's king. They want to see the evil. They want to embrace the cruelty. So they start mocking him, clothing him with purple. Purple's the color of, of royalty. This is what the Caesar would wear purple. I guarantee it's purple because the dyes cost more. This is likely a red Roman cloak that has been faded and is basically at rag status. And it kind of has that purplish pink look to it as the dyes fade out. Likely that's the, the purple here that we're talking about in the Greek. It's not actually Roman dyed robes. They'd be too expensive. So it's likely an old rag that they grabbed to, to make a mockery of him. Um, the crown of thorns, you, the Caesar would wear a crown of golden leaves. And it would be very expensive and very valuable. This is not a gold crowd of thorns. This is probably just thorns from outside the building. And they went out and grabbed them and wrapped them up and, and pressed them into his skull. Isaiah 53, 4, going back to Isaiah. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. All this is happening because God's letting it happen. You do to my son, you do to me whatever you think you need to do. You carry all your hate and your anger and you put it on him. And in that sense, every whip, every spit, every word of mockery that's sent out at him, God's saying, I'll take it all. Whatever it's possible for humans to dish out, I will take that punishment. And we're talking about an earthly accepting of punishment that he doesn't deserve. I think there's a spiritual level, too, where Satan's able to dump everything he can on him. And that's where this mockery comes in. It's not just a physical beating that he's taking. It's an absolute sense of, I have done nothing. I've spent three years in ministry trying to teach these people and help these people. And at this point in time, Jesus is utterly alone, utterly by himself, and his flesh had to be thinking, did I do anything? Is any of this going to work? They salute him. The, emo the emotional abuse gets piled on top of the physical abuse. Hail, King of the Jews. Again, they say it with their mouth, but it's in total mockery. This is why I think it's important we know this. When you say to somebody, are you a believer? Are you following Christ? Oh yeah, I follow Jesus. You can say anything you want with your mouth. It doesn't mean it's true, right? Either you're following with your life or you're not. But these soldiers are clearly not following Jesus, and they clearly don't think he's king of the Jews. And you can tell that because of their lifestyle and the abuse they put on Jesus' name. So what's coming out of their mouth might be one thing, but their hearts are completely different. They do it with a reed. Matthew points out that this reed is this like little thick branch is something they treated like a scepter. It was part of the, the mock king outfit they put on him. But they take the reed, that scepter, that representation of power, they take it out of his hand and they start wounding him with it. They start beating him with the mockery power that they had given him. Um, the reed would be thick. It wouldn't cut. It would likely bruise. Um, you could you can slash with a whip, um, but they would put stones on that whip and pieces of glass at the end of it, so it'd be some bruising, some wounding. Go back to Isaiah, chapter fifty-three, verse five. He was wounded for our transgressions; he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement, that, that verbal abuse, for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Again, a little bit of hope in there. There's a reason for this. They spat on him. They, you know, Judas gave him a kiss. That I, I don't know what's worse, getting kissed by, by a betrayer or being spat on by your enemy. Open disregard, open disrespect, open dishonoring. They bow a knee to him. Again, just false worship. Um, mixing in one of the Ten Commandments sins right there. We have this horrible mix of, 
of worship and hatred that's coming out of these soldiers. And frankly, it's a really good image of evil. Evil at its core is this horrible mix of respect for things that they don't respect and, and, and mockery of things and hatred. They acknowledge the kingship. They worship him as Lord, but all with mock, mockery and even a delight in their mockery. They like it. There's a joke here to them. There's an entertainment thing here for them that someone else has to suffer for their own entertainment. There's going to be no rebellion. This is what's going through their head. You think you can rebel against Rome? This is what happens to rebels. So the soldiers are just told by their boss, this guy's a rebel, and they just treat him that way. Based on actions, there seems to be a point being made here, and the point they're making, I think, the Jews don't have a king. And that's what the soldiers are trying to say. You don't have a lord. You don't have a, a, a regent that looks out for you or can care for you. And I think the enemy does the same thing today. What the enemy would love to have us believe is that Jesus isn't going to step in for us. He won't be there for us. He has no power whatsoever. You think Jesus is going to do something in your life and the voice of evil says there's no nothing that can do anything. But I, I want to say without letting that lie, God says the exact opposite. That what looks weak in this world is actually where he can do some glorious things. When you're at your lowest, that's when God's planting seeds in your soil. Like he's trying to do something in these moments. There's reasons for these things. They led him out to crucify him. Uh, by the way, to be led out implies that Jesus is still walking at this point, which is pretty amazing. Doctors have looked at this and you know done like medical studies of this process. And the, their argument is, so for three years, Jesus's ministry has been to walk here, walk there, walk here, walk there. I think from Jesus' perspective, knowing what's coming, is that for three years, he's been exercising. Like, he's able to do these pieces despite horrible abuse to his body because he's in great shape. Again, a public declaration of the king of the Jews. Um, he has to take up a crossbeam. When it says they led him out to crucify him, they've likely already nailed his hands to the crossbeam. And the crossbeam is something you carry. Uh, it's... Uh, It, it then gets mounted to stakes. The stakes are permanent, and there's a number of stakes in the crucifixion area outside Roman, um, Roman occupied cities. So what they do is take the big, biggest, busiest gate in town, and I think the chosen really represented this well, the main trade gate. And just off that main trade gate, they would put permanent poles, concrete them in the ground, and then all you'd do with the crossbeam is you'd bring it out and you'd just hang it on that cross. You'd cross it. But it's a stake that would be standing out of the ground. This is important for the, the imagery with the, the serpent on the stake with Moses, the bronze serpent they had to look at for salvation. I think it's an interesting connection to that. Uh, but they would take the busiest gate in town and they'd put this there. So when it says they led him out, this, they're leading him out to where those stakes are at, which would be that place where everybody can see what happens to somebody who thinks that they're the king of the Jews. This is what happens to Jewish people that get a little too uh, excited about things. Isaiah 53. Verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he's literally carrying a burden, a physical burden at this moment as he does it. 
Mark 8.34, he's going to come back. He's already taught them these things. Uh, Whoever will come after me, this is back when he was with the disciples. Everything was good. There was lots of fish and bread in the baskets. Whoever will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Those words had to be ringing in their heads right now. He actually is getting sent to a cross. And he's like, whoever comes after me, let him deny himself, which means you'd step in as he's being led through town and you'd say, let me, let me help you with that cross. Knowing that everybody in the crowd is going, oh, you're a follower of Jesus. This is what Peter ran away from last chapter. Jesus invited them to help him come take up your, take up his cross and follow me help me carry the cross. That's all I want you to do is step in, be there. I have to ask, how much do I love my Lord? Are his promises and his love and his blessings great enough to where I would take up any weight for him that I could? I'm nothing. I have nothing to offer him. But man, if there's some burden that's on a brother, a sister, a friend, or even somebody who's outside the kingdom that I can help with that burden, can't I do that? Couldn't I help Jesus in this moment, this thing that burdens Jesus's heart, would I help him? Would I stand with him? Would I take one, just step in once when somebody spits at him and let it hit me instead of him so he can be spared one bit of spittle? And in this moment, nobody does that. Jesus just stands in there. And I think that what's in the heart of the disciples is that they're protecting themselves. They're too worried about themselves. They, got the, they, they don't want to step into these moments because they might have to actually endure these things. So in, in not stepping up, they're actually denying their master. Everyone has turned everyone to his own way. I'm more important than Jesus. Peter's thinking that. Luke's thinking that. The beloved John is thinking that right now. The little kid running off with the towel ripped off last week, he's thinking that right now. All of them are. No one's there for Jesus. No one says, hey, let up on him a little bit. Take it easy. Nobody says, hey, you know what? I'm a Christian too. I'm a follower of this guy. Are you going to do this to me too? You know, if, just if one person could say something like that, maybe there's 10, 20 other people in the crowd that would say, yeah, this is too much, you guys. We're doing, this is, take it easy. You know, on a school playground and somebody's getting beat up and somebody steps in and says, enough, stop this. But nobody steps in for Jesus. Nobody does that. So the evil just continues. Then they compelled a certain man, verse 21. They had to compel somebody, which is to force them to do it. Simon, a Cyrenian, the father of Alexander and Rufus, as he was coming out of the country and passing by to bear his cross. And they brought him to a place called Golgotha, which is translated place of the skull. That wooden beam is about 100 pounds by any historical standard. Uh, It's a lot to carry if you just got whipped and beaten and got blood in your eyes and sweat and heat. So Jesus collapses. He's faltering. He's seen to be faltering. Roman soldiers still have a job to do, and they're pros at this. Uh-uh, somebody's going to get him to that crew. He's not going to die here because then they don't do his job. They want to keep him alive to get him to that cross because that was their command from their commanding officer. So they compel Simon the Cyrenian. What's a Cyrenian? It's North African area, region. Um, likely he's in town for Passover, so he's likely like an African Jew that he's just coming through. It doesn't say that. He could be a merchant, something like that. Um, But some note that it's interesting that he's from Africa because at this time, North and South America aren't really part of the known world. So with Simon getting involved in this, you actually have Jews from the Asian continent, Middle East. 
you got Romans from the European continent and you got Simon from the African continent all being part of this process, right? And so it's just a note, something to think about. Um, also, frankly, it shouldn't be Simon the Cyrenian that steps in and helps with this cross. We know another Simon that should be here right now. And it's breaking the other Simon's heart that he's the guy that should be there. He's the rock. So God finds another Simon to help out. Again, he doesn't need Simon Peter. He'll get somebody to help carry that cross. But at this point, I don't know if it's an act of mercy or if it's an act of just the, the professionalism of these Roman soldiers, but he gets help with his cross beam and they carry him out there. Um, it's interesting when they Simon, say Simon the Cyrenian, and this is why I think he was a traveling Jew. In verse 21, it says he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. Like, we know who those people are, right? Mark's just mentioning, like, he's the dad of Alexander and Rufus. So as Mark's writing to other believers, likely this family became believers. And Alexander and Rufus are just known people in the, in the church at the time. And as Mark's writing this kind of account, he's like, yeah, this is where those two connect in. So um, the other piece that kind of connects this in is Romans 16, 13 says, you know, to say, he's saying it's kind of, hey, say hi to so-and-so and say hi to so-and-so. And, and it says, salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. Right? So it's just this mention of Rufus kind of offhanded, which kind of connects to the book of Mark here. So he bears his cross, getting, I think, one of the greatest honors ever. So let's say Simon's in town, passing by. God pulls him out of nowhere and lets him have one of the greatest honors in human history. The only human being to help out a little bit with Jesus' birth. <laughs> and you got to think, like, how amazing that is. I want to know, I want a historical fiction book that tells me the story of this guy. Because this is a guy that got an amazing honor and we don't know why. Why was he brought in to do this? And at the time he's probably thinking, I don't, like he had to be forced to do it. He's probably resisting with everything he's got. But after the resurrection, he's like, wow, God, thank, let me, thank you for using me. Despite myself, what a cool opportunity. So they led him in verse 20, and now they bring him in verse 22. Jesus has lost his ability to walk. He's the scapegoat. It's been put upon him. This goes with Leviticus 16.10. Leviticus 16.10 says, But on the goat which is the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord. They had to keep him alive. To make atonement upon it and to let it go as the scapegoat into the wilderness fitting perfectly Levitical model and instructions for worship, that that being on which you're putting all your sin, that being has to be taken outside the city. And so part of Simon stepping in here is a fulfillment of prophecy that he is taken alive outside into the city, the wilderness. In the same way Jesus gets blamed for the sin, it's pre he's presented, the sin is placed upon him, and they lead him outside and they take him outside into the wilderness where it's presumed he will die there. Golgotha. <laughs> just, th there's so much in these stories. Tran Mark translates it for us and says it's the place of the skull. It's a known place of death outside the city. This would be where the Romans did their killing. The Romans picked the most populated place to do it. And by the way, the place of the skull, Golgotha, translated into Latin, is a word we know well, Calvary. So this is where we get the word Calvary if it's in the Latin. Place of the Skull. Place of the Skull Chapel. That, that, that's for the biker Christians. But Genesis 22, God asks for Abraham to provide an example 
of a father sacrificing a son. There's a another one of those movies coming out, and I, I hope it does this well. Genesis 22. So Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and the two of them went up together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father. And he said, I'm here, here I am, my son. <laughs> Jesus is going to cry out to his father in a, in a few verses, and we know his father doesn't answer him. So even in the image of the cross in Abraham and Isaac, Isaac has the sweet blessing of his father saying, here I am, son, I'm with you. When we go through trials, we don't have to do what Jesus did at all. We can always go, Lord, are you still there? And the Lord just brings that presence. You know what I'm saying? It's like, I'm with you. You messed up human. <laughs> I'm still here. And Jesus actually promises us, like, what I went through, you're never going to have to, because I will always be with you. I will never forsake you. So God doesn't do this to us, but he does this to his son, because there's something here. And then he said, look, the fire in the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, my son, literally in the Hebrew, God provides himself a lamb for the burnt offering. Burnt offering was for sin. So the two of them went together. And they came to a place which God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. And he bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on the wood. Likely, Abraham went to a place called Mount Moriah. We know that. Mount Moriah is a large, flat hill between two valleys, the Hinnom and the Kidron Valley. We, we, today, we call this Jerusalem. It's largely a flat area, which is a great place to put a defendable city, but there's a little bump on the end, kind of like a knowledge bone in the back of your head. The bump on the end's not much bigger than this room. It's rocky, so there's not a lot that grows there. It's not very valuable, but it's good for two things. It's good for displaying crosses outside a city because it's a little bit higher than the rest of the city, but it's still Mount Moriah, and it's good for a threshing floor. Because it's the highest point which will catch the most wind, which will carry away the most chaff, which is an image of sin. So, 2 Samuel 24, 16. And when the angel stretched out his hand over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from the destruction and said to the angel who is destroying the people, It's enough now. Restrain your hand. And the angel of the Lord was by the... It, it's, it's really cool. Second Samuel, they point out where this happened. By the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. A Jerusalem resident owned the threshing floor right out on this hill, on this city. And this is where the angel of God relented and took sin away and took the plague away, the punishment away. Here's a, the addition of that location is important because you're reading through the Old Testament. It's just, all right, whatever, threshing floor of Aruna. When you start putting together the geography, this is where Jesus was crucified. This is an important spot. And the Old Testament's setting all that up. Just cool. David builds an altar on that specific spot. He thanks God for his mercy. And he thanks God for ending the plague of sin, his sin. And it's nothing's changed with Jesus. We look at Golgotha and we think that's the place where God ended sin's dominance in my life. And David just gets to claim first place on that. Then Solomon builds a temple too big for this little hill. And that hill's too much rock. Part of why they might have called it Golgotha is because it had a bald head. Right? It's just white, bony rock on the top. Another part of why they might have called it Golgotha is that the side of the hill looks like a skull. 
So when Mark translates the place of the skull, everybody knows. If you've been to Jerusalem, you know the spot, right? The Catholics don't know the spot. They picked another spot. But there's a place called Gordon's Calvary, which actually looks like a hill. It's outside the city gate. It's, it's just, everything clicks archaeologically. So David builds an altar on this spot. Thanks God for mercy. Solomon, his son, takes the, the space right next to it and says, that's where I'm going to put God's temple. So God's temple goes on Mount Moriah. It sits right there. Let me read this. 2 Samuel 24, 16. I'm going to keep reading in, in verse 21. I'll skip a couple. When the angel stretched his hand out over Jerusalem to destroy it, the Lord relented from his destruction, saying to the angel who was destroying the people, it's enough, restrain your hand. The angel of the Lord was by the threshing floor of Aruna by the Jebusite, dot, dot, dot. All these, O king, Aruna has given to the king. David wants to buy the floor. And Aruna says to the king, uh, may the Lord, your God, accept you. And the king said to Aruna, no, I surely buy it for you from a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. And David mirrors what Jesus is doing. I'm not going to take away sin. I'm not going to honor this process and have it cost me nothing. God does the opposite. It's going to cost him everything. It's going to cost him that incarnate life that he took. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. And David built there an altar to the Lord and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. The Golgotha then becomes a place not only to take away sin, Golgotha becomes a place to make peace with God. Dang, God, you know how to write a book. So the Lord heeded the prayers for the land and the plague was withdrawn from Israel. It's all going to happen again. Mark. Does Mark even know these? I mean, this is the thing that God's given us 2,000 years to unpack. This ends the sin of the world. And I want to focus on that because I think this is where Mark, this is why Mark tells such a short story here. This ends it all. The human simply can't provide enough value to pay for the threshing floor. We don't have enough value to pay for the sins we've committed. It's like going into debt to credit cards. And you look at your paycheck and you're like, I don't have as much money as I need to pay this credit card. You've, over, you've overdrawn your account. So we, can't, we couldn't just give up our life and pay for our sin. Our sin is much greater than that. It's tainted. Jesus has all dominion, all authority. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. There's no animal that can pay this price. There's no sacrifice that can pay this price. The only thing that can pay this price is the king of the Jews. The Christ and Messiah promised from ages past. God himself, incarnate form, has infinite, infinite resources, power, and energy. It's the only sacrifice that covers the evil of sin throughout history. The only one. So God provides himself, the lamb, for the atonement of sin outside the city, up a hill, next to the Temple Mount, likely the, same, likely the same hill of Abraham, the same hill of David, the same hill that the angels stopped the plague of sin, same place, everything connects. This is a place where a king offers that which costs him something to pay the price for his sin. David models it, Jesus does it. Verse 23, Then they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he did not take it. The uh, it was common practice for people getting crucified that you gave them heavy drinks so they could get drunk and not feel the pain. Interesting. Jesus refuses the drink. Why? He's in pain. We all can agree he's feeling it right now. He was beaten beyond recognition and he doesn't take a Tylenol. 
That's what you can read when you read verse 23. He's not going to give an offer that doesn't cost him something. He's not going to pollute his mind when he's taking it for us. And you just think of mm, what kind of guy we're talking about here. Jesus didn't accept the offering from Aruna, or, or David didn't accept the offering from Aruna. Jesus won't take the offering of mercy to get rid of the pain. Jesus willingly walks into it, and now he willingly takes the full pain of it. Herein is the center of our faith. This is the core of it. Sin equals bad. God equals holy. Sin getting punished is good. I just don't want to take it myself. And that's the center of our faith, is that we believe that Jesus did this intentionally for us, and he did it because he loved us. It's a law of propitiation. Why, is, why can somebody take my place as for a punishment? Because God said he could. So he, he put this law right in the Jewish code. You can propitiate. You can substitute. So you don't want to pay the price. You, can just, you, know, you don't want to give your son for service to the temple. You can just pay a price and pay for your son to not serve in the temple. Verse 24, when they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots for them to determine what every man should take. This is Psalm 22 fulfilled. If you want to flip there, you can kind of glance at that. The Jews offered him a, uh, often at a crucifixion, they would allow a loincloth for discretion. And it does say in Mark that they put Jesus' clothes back on him. So there's some debate over whether or not he was naked on the cross or whatever. And that's partially because of verse 24 is that even that loincloth that they put on him, or the robe that he would have had on, um, the Romans would have then even taken those as fabric that they could use. So I don't know if they divided the garments after he was dead or before he was dead, and frankly, I don't care. Isaiah 53, verse 12. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he's poured out his soul unto death. Another fulfillment. Verse 25. Now it was the third hour and they crucified him. Third hour is about six in the morning. That was a pretty early trial, wasn't it? Before everybody got up, before everybody got out there. And the inscription of his accusation was written above, the king of the Jews. Each of the gospels words that slightly different, likely because it was in three different translations, Aramaic, Greek, and um, Latin. Explanation, not, or in Hebrew, it would have, Pilate would have made that in Hebrew, and in other Gospels, they complain about it because they don't want that above his head. Um, and he's like, now nah, we're going to leave it up there. So it's likely he put it in Hebrew in, in multiple languages. Crucified doesn't need an explanation. Notice Mark doesn't translate that word in verse 25. Uh, it's, but we can just do the same. It's bad. It's torture. It's not good. It was invented by the Assyrians. It was perfected by the Greeks. It was mastered as a science by the Romans. Mark, for all the details, he leaves just the fact that that sign was put above his head. He's guilty of being the king. That's, all, that's his crime, is that he's our Lord. And evil just doesn't like that in itself. So they make a point here. I'm sorry, the third hour is not 6 o'clock. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. So it would be, it's, you got to just do the time shifts. Um, so depending on this, if you agree with John, it, it took roughly three hours for the beating, the hiking, the walking, and the getting on the cross, a short time. Um, and, and so that's one of the spots people get into, like, well, there might be some disagreements here. I don't struggle with them because it's three hours. I'm either saying it started here or it ended here, and that three-hour gap is a matter of whoever's writing it, writing it the way they want to. So I just don't struggle with that one. If you want to get into it, there's some great texts that explain some of those time differences. King of the Jews. 
It's a true statement above his head. Even when they post the crime above his head, which was standard practice, um, they actually put something up there that's not a crime. And so there's no accusation. He dies as a, a sinless death in a very practical sense, not just spiritual, but spiritual also. Four words in the Greek, likely posted in the Hebrew and the Aramaic, so everybody could read it, likely in Latin too, or at least it would be in the records. And how do we regard this scene? <laughs> what are we looking at visually when we see this? And most of us are like Catholics. We see the gore. But let's not look at the gore for today. I don't think Mark does. He doesn't focus on it. Let's look at Jeremiah 31. A triumph and a redemption of sin is what this is called. This is a triumph. This is a moment. 1 John 5.10 calls this the highest form of love possible on the earth. Let's focus on how much we're loved. We didn't have to take any of that. Romans 5.10 tells us that when we look to the cross, we're supposed to rejoice as a redemption which is offered for Jews and Gentiles at the same time. We're supposed to look at this and rejoice. Oh my word, my God's amazing. 1 John 2.2, he is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours, but also for the whole world. Philippians 2, an image of how we're to endure to the end. This is our role model. It's not as bad as Jesus. We can still keep going. 1 Peter 2.21, that's what suffering as a servant looks like. Sometimes I got to give up things I like to do things for people I love. And for Jesus, he didn't do this because he wanted, he was self-torturing. He did this for the joy set before him. Like, if you think about those things, God's teaching us to not think in terms of the flesh. We're supposed to see things in terms of the spirit. He's teaching us how to do that. This is obviously in the flesh bad. It is obviously in the spirit amazing. It's perfect. It's Hebrews 2.9. But when we see Jesus, who is made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everybody. You know what he just did? He just killed death. That's the best ending scene for any action movie. Any You want the biggest bad guy you can think of and create in the human imagination? Death would be that bad guy. And Jesus just beat him. And we should be triumphant in that. Verse 27, with him they also crucified two robbers. One at his right, the other at his left. Throughout the Old Testament, the right hand is the, the hand of power and the, act, the actor for the king. The left hand is the hand of counsel. So he's surrounded by idiots at the end of his time. Both his earthly power is gone and his earthly counsel is that of an idiot, a fool. Isaiah 53, 12, if you want to flip back to that one. It just keeps going. And he was numbered with the transgressors and he bare the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He's actually, he's there for those two too. You go through all of Isaiah 53, I counted 29 other specifics that get fulfilled in the crucifixion. Verse 29 in our chapter, and those who passed by blasphemed him. Uh, notice the passing by there. This was a high traffic area. People coming into the city for the morning saw a new guy on that cross. And then they're like, oh, what did that guy go for? Oh, that's, oh, that's, oh, that's Jesus. And we overslept. We, we missed the first event of the day here. So they, those who passed him by blasphemed him, wagged their heads saying, Aha, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself, come down from the cross. You're such a miracle worker, work a miracle. 
mockery. I, I don't think verse 29 is a lot different for us today. I still hear people say things like this. You think people walk on water? You know, you're kind of like, no, I think God helps people walk on water. But they just, they just see things for what they are in the flesh, and they can't see anything past that. They passed by. They're wagging their heads. Think of the language Mark uses there. What does it mean to wag your head? I tried to practice. You know, like Sam's doing the bobblehead thing. Wagging the head. It, wow, it's such I, I think this is, again, Mark is usually very plain spoken, very direct, very common words. He uses a very uncommon word here. But there's a, a connotation that there's something unnatural about what's going on here. There's an unnatural glee. There's a strikingly disturbing motion happening with their heads. Um, they're glorifying in the pain of another human being. And this feels really demonic to me. There's, there's, there's a celebration going on that's not our celebration. It's a celebration because evil thought it's his thinking that it's one. Verse 31, likewise the chief priests also, mocking among themselves with the scribes. Chief priests are supposed to be dignified, right? Those are the professors of the day. They're supposed to be honorable, keep their cool, everything's, you know, to be surveyed and understood. They're mocking among themselves with their joking around. With the scribes saying, he saved others. He can't even save himself. Himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Why does Mark record the mockery? Because listen to what's in the mockery. They just called him the Christ. They just called him the King of Israel. They're giving him all the titles and ascribing to him all the titles in mockery that he actually has in truth. There's a passage that the final judgment, every knee will bow and every tongue will does that mean that everybody's going to heaven? Don't be a fool. It doesn't mean that. We have every tongue confessing right now. We even had soldiers bowing. That didn't mean anything about their heart. It just means that they can't say an untruth in these moments. There's something happening right now that's a very powerful spiritual move. God's going to manifest it. The chief priests, these are the top brass. They're coming out to watch a crucifixion on Passover. They have no business anywhere near death, according to Levitical law. They shouldn't be anywhere close to this stuff. It's why they were trying to get it done so quick, right? It's why they want to get him off the cross before the end of the day. They're more concerned about legalism than they are about the actual spiritual condition of mocking and celebrating a dead guy on a cross that didn't do a crime. He saved others. (laughs) Even in their mockery, they admit in verse 31, he saved others. They know he raised people from the dead. Again, it took almost 100 years for people to, to start denying the miracles of Christ because everyone admitted them. Everyone saw it. There was no challenge to the actual behaviors and miracles of Jesus. He was either a miracle worker from Beelzebub or he was a miracle worker from God, but there was no doubt that he was a miracle worker. So in verse 31, again, they're confessing again that he has the ability to save. He's a savior. Verse 32, let the Christ announcing his name descend from the cross. This is the same temptation that Satan gave him. Hey, if you do it my way, I'll give you, I'll give you everything. If you worship me, then you can have the, the dominions of this world. And Jesus is just like, I don't think so. I got something better in mind. I got a better trade that I'm going to make. I'm taking it all. <laughs> it's all my stuff. So we believe in Jesus because he endured the cross. He accepted the worst we could give and it didn't beat him. So we celebrate it. 
Uh, one of my favorite pastors, Pastor Jeff in Madison, points out that when they first launched the first rocket towards the moon, the very first effort at it, the crowds gathered to watch the rocket, not to be amazed at the science of it all, but to laugh at the, the, the they were mocking it. They're sitting around making jokes, had little tailgate parties, thinking, oh, these guys are going to just blow up a rocket. They didn't think it was possible. The tone of that mockery changed instantly when that thing went up into the stratosphere. And all of a sudden it was like, whoa, what just happened? Listen to verse 33. Now, when the sixth hour had come, he was on the cross for three hours. That's an amazingly short amount of time, by the way. They overbeat him. So they bled him too much. So when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from noon to three o'clock, it looked like night. Even creation looks away from what's happening on that cross. Romans reco- Roman records agree that there was an unusually long solar eclipse. And Phlegon, one of the historians, um, noted an earthquake here too. This is how it reads in the Roman records. In the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, there was an extraordinary eclipse of the sun at the sixth hour. The day turned into dark night so that the stars in heaven were seen and there was an earthquake. So it's perfectly like there's no doubt on the historical record that this happened. How does day turn into night for three hours? Like eclipses don't last that long, which is why they noted it. Like this was an extraordinary eclipse of the sun. In other words, it was not an ordinary eclipse in Roman records. So uh, an eternally recorded supernatural event agreed upon by Gentiles and by Jews, and there was about three hours here where everything went dark. I don't know how to explain that other than that God made it dark, right? Some people say maybe it was a huge comet that went, that like covered the sun. That'd have to be a pretty huge comet. Like we're talking like, no, it, God shut things down for a little bit. God takes full responsibility for the fall of humanity here, and the creation itself is part of that responsibility that's being taken. The weight of the world is on Jesus. There is no light. There is no salvage. There's no comfort. There's no one to carry the load. There's no one to stand with Jesus. Even God is gone. And in the ninth hour, that's the hour of the evening sacrifice. This is when at Passover, everything's done. Jesus dies on time to be the Passover lamb. I think that's why Mark's pointing out these hours. Ezra 9, 6, and I said, oh my God. I'm too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you, my God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has grown up to the heavens. If our guilt goes to the heavens, that's got to be part of this equation too, Ezekiel. Like the heavens are part of this whole judgment. How do you look on the cross when you know your guilt is part of it? Hour nine. This is when Daniel was praying for help, and the angel arrives to him at hour nine, salvation's at hand. Hour nine, Acts chapter three, Peter prays for the Holy Spirit. It's at hour nine, the Holy Spirit shows up. Hour nine, I think, is when Gandalf promised that he would return with the Rohirrim. He said, on the morning of the third day, you look to the west because I'll be there. And and again, I I hate making these Lord of the Rings references all the time, but they're so good. Sorry, Lisa, we will watch the movie. (laughs) Hour nine, it's a big deal. Verse 34, at the ninth hour, says it twice, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, 
And then Mark translates, thank you, Mark. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Translated, spoken in Aramaic, the common tongue. Mark translates it for the Greek reader. Unlike Isaac, Abraham isn't there to say, I'm right here. When Jesus says it, he's pitifully alone. That's the sad part. Let me tell you the happy part. He's quoting Psalm 22. Can you guys flip there? Psalm 22 switches in the ninth hour. First half of it is pretty horrible. Like, things are bad for David. But something happens in verse twenty in Psalm 22. It, it actually turns. It turns on a dime. And it becomes a psalm of rejoicing. Psalm 22, verse 6. But I'm a worm, and no man, a reproach of men, and despised by the people. And all that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. Another weird term, like the wagging of the heads, right? They shake the head saying he trusted on the Lord that they would deliver him, let him deliver him, seeing, seeing he delighted in him. Sound familiar? Verse 16, for dogs have compassed me, come around me, and the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. Sound familiar? Jesus also knows that the end of the psalm is praise. I think he was so weak that he shouted out the first words, and he shouted out the last words, but I think Jesus recited this whole psalm. As it was happening, he recited all of it. And I just think they couldn't hear that part, which is why they were offering him vinegar and stuff. Like, here, you want to clear your throat? Jesus knows the end of the psalm is praise. And this is what, and again, he's in the toughest of times, but he's modeling for us how to deal with adversity. Quote the scriptures, memorize them, learn them. Know that no matter how bad you feel, there's the ninth hour. Gandalf will show up with the armies. Jesus is coming on the clouds. There is a turning point. Death is not the end. The entire psalm turns on verse 21. And look at what the verse 21 is. I just love this. In a situation where Jesus says, Lord, why have you forsaken me? There's no answer. Verse 21 says, you have answered me. You've answered me. And then it says, verse 30, a seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born. That he has done this. What's happening on the cross is he's birthing a new people, a new generation. There's a seed getting born here. We don't look at the cross and mourn, and I don't think Mark does either. We look at the cross and something amazing is happening in the history of the world. He's birthing us here. This is not a, a, a psalm of despair, folks. Psalm 22 is not about the worm. It's about the hope of being born again as a servant seed, just like Jesus set the model for us to do it. Verse 35, some of those who stood by when they heard that, said, look, he's calling for Elijah. They don't even understand what he's saying, which is why I think he's so, he's saying Eloi, and they're thinking he's saying Elijah. They can't hear him. It's amazing. They can't even hear him when he's reciting the scriptures because they're so blinded and deft, deafened by their, their mockery. Then someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, offered it to him to drink, saying, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come take him down. They're still mocking him. They're mocking him at the most beautiful point in human history. This is us, by the way. This is humans. This is people we know that they're still mocking God, and he, God's trying to do beautiful things in their life. He's called them out. 
Sour wine's another word for vinegar. We call it vinegar. It's a cleaning agent. Likely this is so he could speak up, or it was just flat-out mockery. Let's see if we can get him to drink wine or drink uh, vinegar. This is not the mercy of the other offer. Likely he was reciting this all the way through. They stood by. They don't even understand the word. Look, he's calling for Elijah. Let Elijah come save him. They don't even know the scriptures. Like, Elijah's not our savior. Like, you don't read the Old Testament and come out with that thought. So it's just, they're misquoting the word. They're reveling in pain and, and, and hurt. They're mocking. Verse 37 says, And Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and he breathed his last. The book of John, I think John kind of interviewed some of the people who were there, probably interviewed his mom and Mary Magdalene, who would have been closer to the cross, and they heard what he said. Mark just said he shouts out his last word, but John records that last word was tetelestē. I'm pronouncing that with a Minnesota accent. Paid in full. Finished. Done. So if it were Mark that were here, or Peter the fisherman, they might not have known that Greek word, but he yells it out. And the final word of Psalm 22 is that he has done or it is finished. And so it is likely he goes through all of Psalm 22. Take some time and read that this week and study it. It is not a song of mourning. It's a song of new birth. Jesus keeps the word of God as close as he can to his heart and his mind as the only protection left to him in the toughest of times. All he has is what God has said. So he says, Lord, Lord, why have you forsaken me? And there's no answer. But then he remembers it has been answered. And then he can say it's finished. And I don't think he's saying it's finished like I'm done on the cross. I think he's finishing the psalm and he knows that God has done it already. It's already been planned. It's already been prophesied. It's already part of God's plan A and God's done it. Or he's just saying, okay, the hour's finished. I can feel I'm going to die. Thank goodness this is over, right? That said, the price is paid. We can say the worst has been laid on Jesus, but I'd invite you to say he's got three days in the grave. We have no idea what he went through for those three days, but I'm going to guess it was worse than what we just read. I'm going to guess that what he endured for us at a spiritual level was far worse than what he endured for us on an earthly justice level. So Jesus goes into the grave. He took his cup. He was a willing sacrifice, didn't say a word. It's done at the Passover, fits every requirement of the law, fulfills every prophecy in the Old Testament about this. The blood is on the crossbeam of the house, covering the family that comes under it. The lamb is slain prior to sunset. The household is saved, just like in Egypt. It all comes true. And from this point, people can then change their tune if they want to. Verse 38. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The, the temple age is over. We're done with that the Mosaic law system. Now we're under Jesus' authority. By the way, when it says the temple veil, when I think of a veil, I think the lacy things my grandma used to have in her house. You know, that, that if you touch them wrong, they catch and you put a snag in them, like nylons. Don't touch my nylons. The, the veil in the temple was a 60 by 30 foot, multi-layered, thick, piece of fabric, more like a quilt. You don't just tear a quilt. You don't just rip a quilt, right? But this thing was torn, and Mark makes a point of it. It was torn from top to bottom, like a full rip. And if you want to rip something that thick, there, there should be some muscle behind it. It took 230 priests to carry the veil when they moved the tabernacle around. 230 grown men to carry this. You don't just rip it. 
It's not like an accident. It's not like somebody accidentally caught their pants on this thing. So this means the Gentiles could be outside the temple in the, in, and you could, when they opened the door, you could see straight into the Holy of Holies. You could see the ark. That veil was the thing that blocked the view. So symbolically, the veil was always that there's kind of a, with sin, there's a border between humans and men. And when Mark points this out in verse 30, 38, I think he's saying it for the Gentiles too. Now you can see our God. Now you got to look at what our God does for us. Our God will die for us. What are your, what's your God done for you lately? No barrier. Hebrews 10, 19, therefore having the boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, he consecrated this for us through the veil that is his flesh. The wall of separation between God and humans, the one that was put there by Adam and Eve, it's gone. This is sad when you get Christians that feel, still feel like they're getting beat up by sin all the time because they are. But man, there's no reason to go through that. God's given us a spirit of victory and triumph. And as Christians mature, they start to realize the power in Christ, the power in prayer, the power in a fellowship of accountable believers, that sin starts to evaporate. And we just get rid of one sin after another in our life because God's purifying us unto service for his holy ministry. The, ta- the veil tore. Then the Gentiles react. Verse 39. So when the centurion who stood opposite him saw that he cried out like this and breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. That centurion had seen a few crucifixions in his time. This was not his first time to the rodeo. Something's different. Might it be the three hours of darkness in the middle of the day? Could it be the, the sound of a tearing veil that's, that, that would you could probably hear from Golgotha? It's not that far. Could it be the earthquake that gets recorded by the Romans and in the other Gospels? Something's going on here that this wasn't right. That guy just said it is finished and it feels like the world just ended in every way. All of creation cries his name. So this, and by the way, a centurion, a soldier, these guys are hardcore. They don't just say things like, I think that was God. Like that, it takes a lot to move a soldier to have that kind of an emotional reaction while they're carrying out their duty of crucifixion. Like these are not softies we're talking. They're not emotive people by nature or by trade. So the soldier has likely seen hundreds of crucifixions, but this one, he proclaims it with his mouth. Truly, this man was the son of God. Then the Jews react, verse 40. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the less, <laughs> that's what a horrible nickname, and, and Joseph and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him from Jerusalem. By the way, people that get upset in the chosen that there's women that follow Jesus, this is the verse where they get that from. So th- there would have, I, I don't agree that they would be in a tent 10 feet away. They'd likely be in a secondary female camp. But um, there were women that followed Jesus that did not run away from him, nor did they pick up his cross and carry him. So let's not elevate women too high here because they're keeping a distance. But they also wouldn't have been seen as a threat. So women were allowed, especially moms, could go to crucifixions, and the soldiers didn't feel there was a rebellion happening. If Peter showed up and did that, they would think that rebellion still has a seed left. 
So, you know, there's a little difference in how the men and women were treated by the Romans. Women and kids were not seen as a threat. Romans wouldn't bother with shooing them away. Only John mentions that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was here. The three synoptic gospels do not mention that Jesus' mom was present at this time. Um, partially because the synoptic gospels were written earlier. There were more first-person accounts where John and Luke did a little more research to put theirs together um, and did some interviews. Verse 41. They also followed him and ministered to him. So there is this idea that there are some of these people that were there um, in part as witnesses to document that he actually died and that they saw him die. Verse 42, now when the evening had come because it was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Mark's pointing out this is all matching with Passover feast. Everything's tying up. And so they prepared for this day. It, it, it's a big deal. The Sabbath for them was a big deal. It's Saturday. Um, but during Sabbath, Jesus is in the grave. And this is part of why Christians don't celebrate Sabbath in that, on a Saturday anymore. We celebrate Sabbath on the day that he rose, which was Sunday, the next day. Verse 43, Joseph of Arimathea, prominent council member who was by himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. So in the same way that Simon uh, Barabbas was the first that could say Jesus died for me, and Simon, uh, the Cyrene, could say, I'm the first that helped carry the weight for Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, the first person to, to repent. He's the first person to, after the, the crucifixion of Jesus, changed his ways. And it says he had to take some courage to do that. He came and he took courage. His actions are what matter here. He would have been one of the guys in the trials convicting Jesus. So... Maybe he kept his mouth shut out of fear. Maybe he didn't agree with the conviction. Maybe he saw the, the evil of this. And instead of just going to his deathbed in his sin, he actually does something about it. He fights it. So here he isn't silent. He has to speak up. He goes into Pilate, showing his position. Not everybody gets to just walk into Pilate, talk to them. He comes in and he took courage and he just said, hey, I'll, I'll, I want to take that body and take care of it. Why is that important? Because criminals didn't get proper burials. The Romans would take the criminal. They would toss them over the edge into a pit called Gehenna and they would burn with the rest of the trash. So unless a family came and paid the Romans which helped to offset the cost of the soldiers. It was a good, good gig. They would pay the Romans for the right to that body, and then they would bury it properly. That was something that the Romans would do, because the Romans like money. So he asked for the body. He gets it. Verse 44, Pilate marveled that he was already dead. Three hours is not a long time to be on a cross. Wow, those soldiers must have had their way with that guy. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So Pilate marvels first that Jesus doesn't talk, and now he marvels at how much he endured, like he didn't really last very long. So this, the spiritual abuse he was able to take, the physical beatings, took him out pretty quick. Um, I, don't, I, I think to some degree, like, Pilate isn't hating on Jesus. He's just not doing anything about it. There's a passive sin with Pilate. There's an active sin with the, with the religious leadership. There's a hatred there. Um, so he calls in the saturni. He goes, I, how long has this guy been dead for? Like, wow. Like, he kind of wants to take note of that. Um, but in doing verse 44, we have just confirmed death. Because I, and, and so there are skeptics that are like, well, maybe they just didn't notice that he just went into shock of some sort. That is, it takes a lot of faith to believe that. <laughs> to believe that a Roman centurion whose job it is to crucify people, who has been commanded by his superior officer to confirm death on something, 
even if he's doing it out of marveling at it, you will not give a false answer on that question because for a Roman, that puts his life at stake. And to what, why, what reason would the centurion have to lie about this? He's not going to stake his life on this. So the point being, and I think Mark puts it in there for that reason, he actually did die. He actually was dead, verse 45. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Um, and yeah, again, centurions know how to determine if someone's dead or not. In part, the other gospels say they took a spear, put it up between the heart and the rest of the body, and that says blood and water flowed. And when that flows, that means there's no circulation happening. There's no heartbeat. Um, so it was confirmed actually physically in other gospels. Verse 46, then he bought fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in the linen. The fact that Joseph bought new fine linen, he went out and purchased it, hasn't been used before, is an act of honor. And he laid him in the tomb which had been hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. So this is a rushed description. With Passover moving, they're, they're moving fairly quick to get this done because you can't touch a dead body and then celebrate the Passover. You, there has to be a, a cleansing period. So you really don't want to be doing this right now. So for Joseph to do this, he's making a sacrifice. He's probably sacrificing dinner with his family tonight. He's probably sacrificing some things that are kind of sweet and gentle in his life. But he's doing it because he loves his Lord. Uh, you'd say, where's the anointing of the oil? Go back to Mark chapter 14, verse 3. He's already been anointed for burial. How do we treat the body of Christ? I'm going to end on this thought in verse 47. Look at how Joseph does it. He prepares the finest he's got. He takes it. He wraps it. He lays it. He seals it. Look at the verbs. How do we treat the church, the body of Christ? This is my body broken for you. How do we treat it? Give it your finest. Take it in wrap it and take care of it. Hold it precious. I think sometimes, we were talking about this this weekend, sometimes we don't hold precious the body of Christ. We just let anybody do anything to the body of Christ. We don't hold it as cherished. It's a precious thing. Lay it. Seal it. The body of Christ is not to be left disregarded or handled by this world. It's our body of Christ. It's ours to cherish and hold dear. And we know why we cherish and hold it dear. It's because we've got really good cooks. But we hold it dear. We hold it precious to ourselves. The tomb which has been hewn, very expensive tombs. You don't get to hew into a rock. Most of the tombs outside Jerusalem are little built-up, like, standing coffin things, right? They're masoned. But to get actual stone to dig into, Joseph was filthy rich. Not even, not even middle class. He was top end. No journey here is mentioned. He, the, he's taken down and he's put in the tomb, which likely gives us that the tomb is very close to Golgotha, a little stony outcropping on the side. Gordon's Calvary has a tomb right underneath it that was not used. But no, And so, you know, a very expensive tomb like that to not get used by an entire family and filled with bodies, that seems like a giant waste of money. So there's a strong argument that this is a tomb was not used out of honor for Jesus, that that was the tomb he was laid in. That's the place that's precious now. That place of death became precious to the church, and it became re restored and retained. The place where we put our sins and kill them, that's a precious place in our life, and we hold it dear. We don't dwell on the cross part of it. We dwell on the forgiveness part of it, 
and we love this pie and we hold it dear, we hold it precious, which is confusing to me. Why you, you'll get Christians that get saved, but they want to hold on to the filth in their life. I'll, I'll give up everything for Jesus, but these little things, I kind of like them. And they just cling to filth. But that's not holding Jesus precious. It's not giving him the honor he deserves. It's not buying him new linens and wrapping him in it. Right? If we want to take the body of Christ, we hold it with some precious things. And very serious. I'm very playful usually, but it's a very serious thing we do when we meet together and study his word and sing his worship and eat at his table and fellowship with his saints and pray for him to be in our lives. It's very serious. But it's hard to be that serious because what when you do those things, what happens is an abounding joy. So everything that comes out is just joy. But it's what makes it, the root of it, the philosophy of it, the theology of it, the psychology of it. It's amazing what it does. Isaiah 53, one more verse. They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. So again, another fulfillment. Like they thought they, they made his grave with the dead bodies in the pit, but he got taken and it got put with the rich. Because in the death, he becomes precious. So on, on retrospective study, you can go then back. At this point in time, you can go back and read the Old Testament. Everything points to Jesus. Abraham, David, Solomon, Aruna. You know, all these things point to Jesus in retrospect. God's called all the shots for all of it for us so we can see that God has intervened into history on our on our account last verse verse 47 and Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of uh, Joseph observed where he was laid this is important that's two witnesses that know where he was put in the grave and again early Christians are like where was he put how do you know that you're looking at the wrong grave or the right grave and you get these two witnesses why would you use women who can't try- testify in a court why would you use two women as your two witnesses because it's all he had, <laughs> because it's the truth. And so Mark tells the truth. The Old Testament doesn't say that the witnesses have to be male, but that tradition says they have to be male. So in verse 47, we meet the requirements of God's law, but the world's law would, would not like the fact that these were two women making the testimony. So already it was spoken here, the men abandoned Jesus. It fits with Mark's story. And Mark uses these two, I think, because it's the truth, because he's not anticipating that this particular detail would be ever questioned. In fact, the questioning of the resurrection really doesn't happen until much later in human history. Like, it was, how did he get resurrected? Did they steal the body? The fact that the body didn't remain in the tomb was not the debate in the first century. So we end up with Jesus in a rich man's grave and women making marking the spot for chapter 16, all four Gospels don't shy away from this. All four Gospels make a point of this. This is where he was buried. They know where he was buried. They looked at it. They confirmed it. And they understand that that punishment is their own punishment. Next week, we get to the good news. Right? It all turns on this. Just like Psalm 22. Everything goes. I mentioned the floodgates. There is, for me... I know this is a long one today, but think of this. We, in this reading, we just opened the floodgates of heaven that have been held back. The blessings of God to a sinful humanity have been restrained. There's been a veil in the temple. There's been a process. Suddenly, at this moment in history, 
everything's there. It's the opposite of Pandora's box. They say with Pandora's box, the Greek story, she opens it up and all the sins come out and all hell breaks loose. This is the opposite of that. This is the opposite of Eve biting the apple. Like at this point in time, they just unleashed heaven on earth because now there's no holds barred. It's full warfare. Satan, you think these people are yours? I'm going to unleash the Holy Spirit in a little bit, in a couple chapters, because on the power of this death that just happened, because you just killed somebody that didn't deserve death. Satan broke the rules. Couldn't stop himself. So in Satan breaking the rules, he's also broke his authority. And he did it to himself. And I think God's just sitting back going, you couldn't stop yourself, could you? Gave you every chance, gave you all. Satan knows what the Old Testament says. Satan saw the imagery there. And God's just like, you walked right into it. Sin, you can claim them. With the Eve, you convinced Adam and Eve to do it, and you could claim some authority over them. But now you can't claim anything because you just killed somebody that you shouldn't have killed. They never bit the apple in any way, shape, or form. It all breaks. C.S. Lewis creates that image of, of the old law and the, temp, the, tab, the ta- table breaking when they kill Aslan. But it breaks the system. And in doing that, Satan relents or gives up his authority over your life. Let's make it personal. Satan doesn't own you and can't own you. You're the one that gives yourself over to sin. But it's not Satan that can force that to happen. He, the floodgates of heaven just got unleashed. I love that. I want to end on that note. We won't focus on the cross. We'll focus on the fact he was buried in a rich man's grave fulfilling another one of the prophecies. Jesus called his shots. God knew what was happening. Next, Now next week it all gets going. So let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. I thank you for a body of believers that want to dig into your word. Um, and Lord, I just pray it does wonders in our heart. May we just be glorified. May we rejoice in your name. May we look at what you've done and look at it like you've told us to look at it, as a triumph, as a victory, as the greatest act of love ever committed. May we know that it's the floodgates of heaven, that you you did all of this to break the authority of sin and death in our life. Lord, I don't want to die. I I love my life. Like you've given us a heart to live and to be free and to be joyful. Lord, renew in us a clean heart and create in us a, a, a clean spirit. Lord, may we run from the sin in our life. May we just shed it and get rid of it and they can have it. And may we just run to you um, with pure, with, with open minds and open hearts, with ears to hear and eyes to see. Or may we cling to nothing in our life that takes away from you so that we can open ourselves to your glory and your majesty. And Lord, all we have is who we are. And Lord, we give ourselves over to you and we ask you to lead our lives, to come into our lives, to create a new spirit in us. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.